All right, we're going to start up. Uh, on my notes, I wrote down the three questions we're going to answer. And the first one is, how can Jesus be the only way? But I looked at my notes and I paused because autocorrect changed it. And I looked at my notes and said, how can cheese be the only way? I was like, I don't think that's going to be worth our time. Well, to give you some context, my name is Sean McDowell. I'm a professor at Biola University, and I teach in what's called apologetics. I have some undergrad classes and graduate classes. Now, how many of you know what apologetics is? How many of you, it's new? You're not quite sure. Show hands. Okay. So apologetics, there's a verse in the Bible in 1 Peter 3.15. It says, sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart. Always be ready with an answer for the hope within. Give it with gentleness and respect. What Peter says is be ready with an answer. The word answer in Greek, the original language the New Testament was written in, is apologia, which is translated as apologetics. So apologetics is one task or discipline of Christians, not just pastors or Bible teachers, that all of us are to be ready with an answer why we think Jesus is God, why we think the Bible's true, why we think God created the world, why we think God is good. And what's awesome about this is the Bible doesn't shun doubt and questions. It invites it. Jesus said, love God with your heart, your soul, and your what? Your mind. In Isaiah, God says, come let us reason together. So I'm not going to have time to answer all of your questions, but I want you to know something. I've been doing this longer than probably all of you have been alive, and I only say that because I've been doing this long enough to know if I'm willing to seek for an answer an answer can be found. You know why? Because Christianity is actually true. Christianity is actually true. So let's start with the first one. How can Jesus be the only way? I had a conversation with a young man. It's probably been almost a decade now. And he said to me, somewhat point blank, he's like, how can you say Jesus is the only way? And I said, I'm not. I'm not the one who has credentials to say Jesus is the only way. I said, Jesus is the one who claimed it. Take it up with him. Now, why would I respond that way? I don't have the credentials in my fallen human state to say with authority about who has eternal life and who doesn't. But the question is, who has the authority to speak on those issues? So if I told you, hey, this afternoon there's a free clinic, I'm leading it, on how to become an NFL quarterback. Let me give you a little hint. None of you should show up. I got nothing. <laughs> I can't tell you how to be an NFL quarterback. By looking at me, it's obvious I didn't play in the NFL. I have no authority to speak on that, so you shouldn't listen to me. Now, if Philip Rivers showed up, if Tom Brady showed up, if an actual past or present NFL quarterback showed up, that person would have the authority and the credentials to speak on it, and you should listen, right? So the question is, who has the credentials and the authority to speak on the nature of heaven? Well, guess what's interesting about Christianity? Of all the big religions, Christianity is based on the life of Jesus, who's the only major religious figure, who didn't just tell us how to find truth, he claimed to be truth. He didn't just tell us how to find God, he claimed to be God. And then what did he do? He was born of a virgin. He lived a sinless, perfect life. He did miracles like walking on water. 
healing leprosy and giving sight to the blind. Then in John 2, he says, I'm going to destroy this temple, his body, and in three days, I'm going to raise it up again. He rose from the grave. Let me ask you a question. Is there anybody in world history with more authority to speak on the afterlife than Jesus? And the answer is no. So if you listen to Tom Brady talk about an NFL quarterback position, then you infinitely more should listen to Jesus when it comes to salvation. Now, last thing I'll say, and we'll move to the next question. But why is Jesus the only way? Have you ever thought about that? Why is Jesus the only way? So important you understand this. Jesus is the only way to get to God because Jesus is the only one that fixed the problem that separates us from God. Let me say it again. Jesus is the only way to God because Jesus is the only one who fixed the problem that separates us from God. You see, every worldview says there's some problem in the world. Marxism says there's haves and there's have-nots. New Age says we forgot that we are God. Uh, Islam says we're just not submitted to Allah. Every religion says there's something wrong in the world. But Jesus is the one who actually diagnosed what's wrong in the world. See, think about it this way. If your car runs out of gas, does it do any good to rotate the tires? No. Does it do any good to spend thousands and get a new transmission? No. Does it do any good to wash your car, make it spotless, and get a new carburetor? No. If the problem is out of gas, what do you have to do? Spend $8 for gas a gallon and fill it up, right? <laughs> It'll be that way, hopefully not soon. Who knows? If the problem is it's out of gas, you got to identify the problem and then fix it. The problem in the world is sin, that we have a holy perfect God. And when we sin, and honestly, all of us know that we have, don't we? We know we've said stuff and we've done stuff, which is why at times we feel guilty. That separates us from God. Jesus, the God-man, lived a sinless life, paid the debt that we couldn't pay, and offers us salvation as a free gift. So in some, Jesus has the right to speak about salvation because he was born a virgin, fulfilled prophecy, lived a sinless life, performed miracles, and rose from the grave. But Jesus is the only way, because he's the only one that fixed the problem that separates us from God. Second question, and then we'll open it up for your questions. So be thinking of your questions, and when I open it up, ask your question quick, to the point, and I'll do my best to help. The second one is, how can a Christian think about transgender? First off, and perhaps most important is this, is if you wrestle with this, God loves you. You are not a mistake. You are not an accident. Every single human being, no matter your age, no matter your sex, no matter your race, no matter your socioeconomic background, every human being is made in the image of God and has dignity and value and worth because you are human. So as Christians, this should not first be a political issue. This should be a question of how do I love my neighbor? How do you love your classmates or your teammates who are wrestling with gender dysphoria? How do you be a good friend to them and love them the way Jesus would? That's the first approach Christians must take. So if we're going to love our neighbors like Jesus, 
then let's think through what Scripture says about gender and how we might approach this topic. I think the Bible, broadly speaking, makes three points. If you want to write these down, these might be helpful, okay? Three points. Number one, that God made us as essentially sexed beings. What do I mean by this? If you go back to Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, it tells us distinctly that in the beginning, God made us what? Male and female. Now, God could have made us asexual. He could have made three sexes. But God chose in infinite goodness and wisdom to make us male and female. Now, there are certain things about you that are not essential to who you are such as the length of your hair, such as your intelligence. You could get smarter or less smart and still be you. How much money you make, how tall you are. If you get older and lose a couple inches, you don't cease being you. There's certain things that are accidental to you, but then there's other things that are essential. And what I mean by essential is they're a part of who God made us to be. And being sexed is a part of what Scripture says it means to be human. God has made us male, and he's made us female. Second, God desires that we live out our gender identity in congruence with our biological sex. In other words, God desires that our gender expression align with our biological sex. So I won't go into all the biblical passages, but there's one in Deuteronomy that talks about how a woman should not wear a man's cloak, and a man should not wear a woman's garment. There's something that it means to be a man, there's something that it means to be a woman. We see in the nature of marriage. Marriage is not a genderless institution. Marriage is one man and one woman, one flesh, one lifetime. God desires that we live out and express ourselves in a way that aligns with our biological sex. Now, you might ask, why would God care? Part of the answer God cares is what it means to be human. So God has made us, this is really important, God has made us as what I'm going to call embodied souls. In other words, you are body and soul. You're not a soul that just has a body. You're not just a body. We are embodied souls. So your identity, who you are, is body and soul. Now, I'm going to use a somewhat lamentable example, but bear with me. The recent drama at the Academy Awards with Will Smith and Chris Rock. And I just use this to make a point. When Will Smith slapped Chris Rock. Now, as far as I know, Chris Rock has not sued him. But if he did, he would not sue him for property damage. Right? He would sue him and say, you hit me. You damaged me. When we saw that, all of us were like, oh my goodness, Will Smith hit Chris Rock. Why? Because our bodies are a part of who we are. And we intuitively understand this, don't we? We are body and soul. So in the book of Romans, interestingly enough, in chapter 12 and chapter 6, it says, offer yourselves as a living sacrifice. And then it says, offer your bodies to the Lord. So the way we offer ourselves to the Lord includes our minds and our thinking and our bodies. So number one, God has made us essentially sexed beings. 
Number two, God desires that our gender expression match up with our biological sex. But number three is where it gets interesting. But Scripture gives little specificity as to exactly what this looks like. You see the trick? God desires that our gender identity match our biological sex, but doesn't tell us exactly what that looks like. So let me ask you a question. Is it okay for a man to wear a skirt? Where might it be okay? Scotland. Now, my name is Sean McDowell. That is about as Irish and Scottish as you can get. I was flying on a plane not long ago, and I met this guy. He had a Scottish accent. I was like, hey, man, I've got a Scottish background. He goes, what's your name? I said, McDowell. He goes, no, it's not. I said, um, I'm pretty sure it's McDowell. He goes, it's not. I said, then what is it? He goes, it's McDool. I was like, okay. He's from Scotland. I guess he's the authority. But the point being, in Scotland... Is it a manly thing to wear a kilt? Sure. If any of you have been to Fiji, out of comfort, they have these wraps that you just wrap around and it looks like you're wearing a dress. I was rolling around Fiji for a couple weeks looking like I'm in a dress, but in that culture, it was considered a fine masculine and or feminine thing to do. So please hear me on this. God has made us sexed beings. He desires that we live out our gender expression in a way that aligns with our biological sex because we are body and we are soul, but Scripture doesn't give us specificity how to do it. Here's where the problem hits, is that our culture has a bunch of stereotypes of what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman, that when certain individuals don't feel like they match up with those stereotypes, the natural response is to then wonder, if you're really a man or really a woman. So, for example, you tell me. Give me an example of a manly man in the Bible. Samson. I heard you say Moses. I don't hear that often. And David are two of the top responses I always hear. David and Samson. Now, I heard it in the back, and I almost never hear this. Somebody shouted out Jesus. Almost never does somebody answer Jesus. For some reason, we have this perception that Jesus was maybe a little feminine according to our stereotypes. Isn't that interesting? Now, when was David acting like a man according to our stereotypes? He killed Goliath, chopped off his head, held it up. I mean, that's a manly thing to do, but you know what else David did? He wrote poetry, and he played a harp. Notice the Bible says David was a man when he killed Goliath, but a little girly when he wrote poetry. Yeah, the Bible doesn't say that, does he? He was a man who wrote poetry, and who went to war. That pushes back on some of our stereotypes, doesn't it? How about Jacob and Esau? By our stereotypes, who was more masculine, Jacob or Esau? Esau, why? He was hairy, and what else? He's a hunter. Think of how many images are like, oh, there's a manly man who's hunting, and he's hairy. Now, what's interesting is Jacob was favored by the mom, and was what? More of a homebody. By the way, who did God choose, Jacob or Esau? Chose Jacob. The Bible doesn't say Jacob was masculine or Esau was masculine and Jacob was feminine. By the way, Jesus is going to come back with a sword in his mouth in Revelation and judge. But you know what else he did? He wept over Jerusalem. I actually think real men cry at the right things and at the right time. Friends, what's the point? Then we'll move on to the third one. The point is that God has made us biologically sexed beings, and he wants us to live out 
our gender expression in a way that matches our biological sex. But we have to be very careful to not adopt certain cultural stereotypes of masculinity and femininity that would communicate to people who don't fit that stereotype that they don't belong. Third question, then we'll open it up, is can a person who commits suicide go to heaven? Now, I realize this question is not just an academic theological question. There's probably some of you sitting here who've had friends, maybe family members, Maybe some of you sitting here are like, yeah, I came because I've had suicidal thoughts. So I realize this is a profoundly sensitive question, but I also want you to realize as Christians, we can be willing to tackle the toughest topics. God has something to say about everything. So is suicide the unforgivable sin? And the answer is, I see no reason why to think so. When you follow Jesus and are regenerated. You're forgiven from your sins, and your sin is justified. The Bible talks about us having been saved as it's something that happened in the past. If you have been saved, no present sin you can commit all of a sudden removes that. Can you imagine how damaging that would be to live like any sin removes us? That's not what the Bible says. We are saved from past, present, and future sins. Now, that's not an excuse to do anything, Right? If you say, good, I'm forgiven for anything, I'm going to live however I want, then maybe you don't really understand what you were forgiven for. So I don't think somebody taking their own life is the unforgivable sin. I see no reason to theologically come to that conclusion. But what is interesting to me that's fair to ask is how a Christian filled with the Holy Spirit can hit such a point of despair that they end up taking their own life. That's an interesting, fair question. Because think about it. Why is suicide such a grievous sin? You tell me, what's the greatest act of love in the Bible? The, laying down your life for somebody else. That's why you know who the hero of Marvel was in Endgame? Iron Man, right? I didn't, you've had plenty of time to see it. I don't feel bad if I ruin it for you. One in 14 million possibilities, Iron Man lays down his life willingly as a Christ-type figure. The greatest act of love is to sacrifice your life for another. That's why the greatest act of hate is to take somebody else's life, the opposite. So to take your own life, in a sense, is one of the most selfish things that somebody can do because it's failing to love our neighbor and to understand the depth of goodness and love that God has for us. So I certainly don't want to say that somebody who commits suicide can't go to heaven but I also don't want to make sure we talk about the gravity of somebody taking their own life and remind you, if you have had those thoughts, friends, please talk to somebody. Please, do not leave this room without telling somebody and allowing God to work through them to love and support you. Amen? we got about 12 minutes. If you have a question, shoot your hand up, state it fast, and I'll do my best. Go. What about people that truly believe in God but walk away from their faith? Here's what I think. There's a difference between committing a sin and losing your salvation because of that and intentionally saying, God, I reject this. I'm turning away from this. I no longer believe this faith. Do you see how different that is? So 
The Bible has a lot of warnings about standing firm in your faith to the end. I've been reading the book of Revelation, and as he speaks to the seven churches over and over again, he's like, stand firm to the end, you will be saved. So I think the Bible gives us warnings to not walk away from our faith because it's possible to apostatize and reject the faith. That's very different than falling into a sin, which, might, which obviously is grievous and serious, but is not akin to rejecting the one who saved us. Good question. I'm glad you asked that. Yes. Ooh, good question. Why didn't God create the earth in which he could just make everyone believe? Fair enough? So listen very carefully. How many of you believe God can do anything? Let me see your hands. Okay? Put your hands down. I don't. I don't think God can do anything. God cannot make a square circle. It's impossible. Hebrews 6 says God can't break a promise. James 1 says God can't be tempted. God can't do anything. Now, why can't God make a square circle? Because a square circle can't exist. It's impossible. Something has more or less than four points, it's not a square. If something has four points, it's not a circle. So even God can't make a square circle. That's not a limitation on God. When we say God is all-powerful, we mean God can do all things that power can do that's consistent with his moral nature. So God can't break a promise because God is truth. God can't be tempted by sin because God is holy. That's not a weakness. That's a perfection. God is the morally perfect being who can do anything that power can do. So can God make a world with free beings and then force all those beings to choose that which is good? Can God do that? No. Because if God makes us free, then he's not forcing us to believe. If God forces us to believe, then we're not what? We're not free. You might be thinking, well, why doesn't God just do more miracles and make it more obvious? Look, friends, have you read John 10, 11, and 12? Lazarus was dead on day four. Jesus wept first, and he calls them out of the tomb when they were mocking him. Now, if you saw somebody who already stank rise from the dead, would that be a pretty good miracle and proof that God is real? What do they do? They want to run Jesus out of town and kill Lazarus. I mean, poor guy already died once, right? <laughs> so, number one, God can't make free beings and force them to believe. I think God has given us enough evidence for those who want to know to believe in him, but those who don't want to, he allows them to reject him. It's a great question. Go. Can I elaborate uh, on how to uh, interact with friends who struggle with, with let's say, same-sex attraction? Now, a Christian versus a non-Christian might be a little bit different. A friend of mine told me a story. He's about my age, a little bit older. When I think he was in the 90s, he was in high school, and he went to this Christian parade against this gay pride parade. And he got in this scuffle with these people who were 
pushing LGBTQ pride at that time. And he ended up tripping this guy and yelling at him. And he told me, he goes, Sean, I look back at myself in high school and am so embarrassed and ashamed of how I treated the LGBTQ community. He goes, in contrast, he goes, let me tell you about my daughter. My daughter has befriended a young man at her high school who's gay. He's not a Christian. And she just, they study together, they hang out. They're just genuine friends. In some ways, when you ask, how do you help somebody who's struggling with homosexuality, it's the same question as how do you help anybody? Because let's face it, we all have struggles, right? Some of us are just better at hiding it than other people are. We all have struggles. So how you struggle somebody with, you love someone with same-sex attraction in some sense is the way we love anybody. So they study together, they hang out, genuine friendship. And my friend's like an evangelist. His daughter and this son was over and he's kind of this like confronting evangelist. He goes, hey son, do you believe in Jesus? <laughs> like straight to the point. He goes, I don't. But if I were to, it would be because of somebody like your daughter. I mean, as a dad, like that couldn't make you more proud. That his failure in that area and his daughter just loved. Now, is that always easy? No. Do you use preferred pronouns or not? Like this gets sticky. I'm not saying there's easy solutions to this. But I found love covers a multitude of sins. If you reach out and just love your gay friends, as you hopefully would any of your friends, you are treating them as image bearers. Just make sure while you do that, you stay faithful to what Scripture teaches about sexuality. That's important. I see two mistakes. I see some people saying, well, maybe I can compromise what the Bible says. That feels more loving. That's a mistake. Others say, well, I'm going to stick on truth and just, I'm, I'm going to stick in the Bible and speak truth to people without love. That's also a mistake. It's grace and it's truth. Yes. Okay, so you said the Bible doesn't say anything about homosexuality that's not a sin. Technically, you're right. The Bible doesn't say anything about homosexuality. Now, why am I saying this? Because the word homosexuality has come to mean something in our modern context. It didn't mean when Scripture was written. So when you talk about homosexuality, it could mean a lot of different things. It could mean same-sex attraction. It could mean identity. It could mean same-sex sexual behavior. So the Bible doesn't talk about same-sex attraction or sexual orientation. The Bible doesn't talk explicitly about same-sex marriage, although it talks about marriage. But it does talk about the design and purpose of our bodies and why same-sex sexual activity is outside of God's design. So we have to be careful how we talk about this. Romans 1 makes it very clear that God has designed us male and female, and some people reject God's design and engage in same-sex sexual behavior. The theme throughout Scripture is that God has designed sex to be within the confines of marriage, from Genesis all the way to Revelation. And marriage is one man, one woman, one flesh, one lifetime. So the Bible sufficiently addresses this topic through the words of Jesus, words of Paul, and the Old Testament. Does that make sense? 
There's a lot of really bad ideas out there that are not biblical. All over TikTok, YouTube, you name it. Go. Is it wrong? Is it wrong to not to preach? Is it wrong to not preach to somebody who's a non-believer? No, it's not wrong. Look, I, I grew up. My parents are on Campus Crusade staff, which is like evangelistic ministry. And my dad is an evangelist at heart. He's sharing Jesus all the time. So this wasn't from him. It was from other people. Sometimes I'd feel guilty sitting on a plane, like, oh, I have to share Jesus with this person, or I'm a terrible Christian. I don't feel that way anymore. I actually have a kind of freedom. It's like, I got to take care of myself. Maybe I have to rest. Now, do I look for opportunities to speak about Jesus? Yeah. I do all the time. I look for opportunities. But you shouldn't have this weight and this guilt that says, if you don't share Jesus, you are sinning. I don't see that in the scripture. That's a burden we're not meant to bear. Now, if somebody never shares Jesus and never evangelizes, I might push them the other direction and say, hey, are you afraid? Are you being obedient to the commandment to make disciples and to share our faith? There's a balance that is there. So I want to lift the weight off you of feeling like you're sinning if you don't share your faith. But I also want to kick you in the rear and say, open up your eyes. There's opportunities, and we need to seize those opportunities. Sometimes in conversation with people, I don't get them all the way to Jesus. What I want to do is put a stone in somebody's shoe. Give them something to think about. Maybe move the ball forward a little bit in their spiritual journey. Sometimes I get right to Jesus. Sometimes we just have a conversation partly there. Does that help? I think we have time for, I like your hat, I'll go with you. This is a huge question. Let me repeat it. You said, grown up in the Christian faith and kind of struggled to figure out, is this just something you believe or something that you know is true? Okay? So this is one of the most important things for you to understand on your spiritual journey. Knowing something does not require certainty. We can know things without being certain. There's some things I know with greater confidence than other things. Like, history is not my expertise, so I know certain things with history with confidence. When it comes to my wife loving me, I have about as close to zero doubt as possible, okay? So don't think, growing up in a Christian home, you have to have certainty to actually believe that something is true. Believing something on a scale of 100 is being 51%. You believe it, but that's a pretty weak belief. There's a point in my life where I had serious doubts, and I didn't know if Christianity was true. I told my dad I wasn't sure if I thought Christianity was true. And he just said, I love you, seek after truth, and I'm confident you'll find it. I'm like, okay, I'm 51%. How do we get to 55? How do we get to 60? How do we get to 80? How do we get to 90? So don't think you have to have certainty, and then just ask yourself, how do you get more confident in your beliefs? One way is to hang with people with a confident faith and just see what makes them tick and learn by osmosis. Another way is to get out and serve. 
I started praying when I did prison ministry for a while. I went in and did ministry. I started praying more because it like stretched my faith. I started praying more when I went and served in the inner city because I was being challenged working with gangs and others for a year. That was outside of my comfort zone. So number one, hang with people with a faith you think is solid. Number two, go practice. Put your faith out there. And number three, ask questions and study. Learn. How do you know the Bible's true? How do you know Jesus rose in a grave? This is what I do, and I will end with this. I'm an apologist. I think we have really good reason to believe the Bible's true. I just did an entire, I haven't posted it. I'm going to post it next week on the evidence for the Exodus. Skeptics will say there's no evidence for the Exodus. I think the evidence is remarkable. And when you actually see the evidence, there's a sense of like, wow, this story isn't just something I believe. This is history. I'm doing an interview Friday on Sodom and Gomorrah. Do you know there's a very good case that could be made that they have found the biblical Sodom and Gomorrah? We can't say for certain, but we have good reason and things are matching up. So what I do, I'm, I, like I said, I'm on TikTok. I try to do some funny videos, but my daughter's like, you're not that funny. I'm like, I am funny. <laughs> See, some of you laughed. It proves I'm right. What I do on TikTok is sometimes I do funny stuff, like I did the top 10 best NBA prospects in the Bible. I thought that was pretty funny. But I also answer questions, 60 to 90 seconds, quick questions. So if you're on TikTok and you just want somebody to answer these kind of questions, I do it on Instagram, I'm on Twitter, but where I do more in-depth stuff is on YouTube. I have a YouTube channel and I do apologetics. So if you start thinking and following this stuff, you'll start to gain some confidence that this isn't just a story from a mythical book. This is actually true. Great question. Wish I could have answered more. Let me say this quickly. I'm around for the next couple days, so feel free to stop me, say hi. I'll be out studying this afternoon in the deck. If you have further questions, swing by and we'll chat. We'll be happy to do that. All right? Have a great afternoon.